And we've got some guys distributing some notes that are the beginning notes of the series that we're going to start in earnest next week, Where is God When It Hurts? And I'll explain those notes in just a bit. But while they're distributing those, let me cover some announcements, things that are coming up. This Saturday, 3 o'clock till dusk, is Mariah Ma's graduation open house at the Ma's home in New Boston. It's on West Road. We have the address listed for you in the program, today's program. So Mariah is one of several graduates that we've had this year, and we want to honor her and encourage her in her uh, achievement. So if you can be there and do that, that would be a marvelous thing. This coming Saturday at 3 o'clock at the Moz. Two weeks from today is our next baptism. It's uh, too late for you to be baptized. We had it in the bulletin for you to say, if if you want to get baptized, see me. Too late. Uh, But... uh, I mean, if you really, if you have some really good excuse, see me before you leave today. But we have a full complement of folks who uh, are being baptized, and we look forward to a great time in the Lord with that. Uh, But that's two weeks from today, and the reason I mention it is because we will have the baptism at 5 in the afternoon. And that morning, our worship service will be devoted entirely to the observance of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And then we will have the Discovering God Hour, second week of the Where's God When It Hurts series. But then that afternoon at 5 o'clock, we will have a full dinner and the baptism. The dinner is in celebration of the the baptism of those who are participating. So we always have a great time with those. We look forward to that. Now, it means you go home and come back, and that's new for us. We used to have our baptisms right after our, our service, around lunchtime. But logistically, in this building, we can't do that. So we have to separate them so that we can set up tables Uh, for the dinner in here. So that means having service in the morning, baptism later in the afternoon. So I encourage all of you to make the effort to do that, even if it's a bit of a hassle for you, uh, because those who are being baptized need to be encouraged in this important step of faith that they're taking. And I'm sure you'll enjoy the uh, baptism celebration if you'll make the commitment to come. Two weeks from today at five o'clock. We have a Mud Hens game that is coming up every year in uh, July, August. We go to a Friday night Mud Hens game. This one is the very first day of August, and it's a Friday night, and after the Mud Hens game, there's a fireworks display. The tickets are available in the Resource Center. That's across the hallway out that door, uh, and they're $10 per person. So pick up your tickets even before you leave today. That's August the first, first Friday night. The next day, Saturday the 2nd, is our annual men's golf outing, and that's listed in your program. The cost is, guys, $50. That includes the golf and and dinner to to follow. It's at the Riverview Highlands Golf Course, and it starts at noon on Saturday, August the 2nd. And then August the 20th, Wednesday night, is Backyard Fellowship at the uh, Brinkley's. David and Christy have opened up their home the last couple of years for us. We always have a great time there, and they've uh, generously offered to do that again. So we look forward to that. Mark that on your calendars Wednesday night, uh, August the 20th. Everybody have those uh, three pages of, of notes. Today is a preview of the series, the title of which is in the upper right-hand corner, Where is God When It Hurts? And we've been advertising that to you and advertising that to folks in the community as, as well. And today I'm doing what I've called a preview for this reason. 
I'm just going to be straight with you for the reason. I've never done a preview of a series before. I just jump into the series. And the series actually starts next week. So why aren't I just waiting till next week and starting the series? Here's why. Because in all the advertising that we've done in the community, we've had some stuff in the newspaper. We handed things out at the Trenton Summer Festival. We had our open house yesterday. We had a bunch of different forms of advertising. And in at least one of those, the date for the beginning of this series was today. The date was wrong. And I found out that the date was wrong. And so for the benefit of any of you who are here, for the beginning of that series, I'm giving a preview of the series today, and then we'll actually start the series next week. So I've got to split the baby and satisfy the people who come on the 13th and the people who come on the 20th. That's what I'm trying to do with this, okay? So bear with it. Next week, you'll get a full complement of notes, and you'll have a spiral notebook with the notes for the series. And those notes will contain, if you look at the third page of what you have, you see the table of contents there. So you'll have 20-some pages in the notebook that will cover the topics that are on the table of, of contents. But for today in this preview, what I would like to, us to look at is on the first page. Now that I've had you turn to the third, go back to the first if you would. And the course description. And at the top, I say, life often seems out of control. Our world and our individual lives are filled with pain and suffering. We naturally ask, is anyone in control? Does anyone care? What can anyone do about it? Can I ever get over this? Life often seems out of control. Now, the word that comes to mind for me when I wrote that sentence and then when I read it is the word random. And that is a word that has been popular with young people. Uh, My daughters say it to me. When I say something they don't understand, which is pretty much every time I open my mouth, they say, that was random. So I've been hit with a random card many times in my, my life. But you know, there are people who pursue life in a random kind of fashion. That they look at the events of their lives and they make no sense. They don't have any overarching worldview through which to see the things that are happening in their lives. And so, for them, they appear to be simply random events. Random chance events. We're going to see in this series that there really is no such thing as random events. From God's perspective, there is nothing, not a maverick molecule in His universe that does anything outside of His sovereign control. So, When we apply random, we can do that in a joking way to your old man when he says something stupid or just something. But we should never apply it to God, and we should never think that the things that are happening in our lives are, in fact, random. The randomness comes for us because we are unable to see all that God sees. So Jonathan Edwards, who by most accounts, is the greatest theologian our country has ever produced, Jonathan Edwards, first president of Princeton University. And Jonathan Edwards said that God has the ability to see life through two lenses. 
And we only have the ability to see life through one lens. God has both a narrow lens and a broad lens. In the narrow lens, focusing in on a particular event, God can simply focus on that event and call it good or evil, bad or good. And he does that in Scripture. And so, for example, Jesus was murdered. Jesus was executed. And God calls that an evil act. Just focusing on the act of an innocent man, in this case a perfectly righteous man, who's never done anything wrong, never sinned, let alone do anything wrong. And he's executed. And God has the ability to look at an event like that and call it evil. And he does so in Acts chapter 2, for example. The people who perpetrated perpetrated this, Herod and Pontius Pilate, were evil men for doing this thing. And yet at the same time, I have a cross hanging behind me. And we extol the cross and all that came out of the cross. And in fact, the Bible teaches us teaches us the cross was God's idea. Well, how do you harmonize those? How can it on the one hand be a heinous evil act, and on the other hand, we can have a holiday called Good Friday that celebrates the crucifixion? What's good about Good Friday? And the Bible tells us what's good about it is that It is part of the eternal plan of God for the redemption of his people. God is able to look at any event, but take the crucifixion. He's able to look at it through the narrow lens and see it for what it is. It's a murder at the hands of sinful people. But God also, Edwards says rightly, has the broadest lens possible. God sees everything connected to every event. And he sees what's going to come out of every one of those events. And the sovereign God orchestrates his world accordingly. And so he is able to look upon that and say, this was my plan. And this is for your blessing and for your ultimate good. And that's why the Bible can say famously in Romans 8.28, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God does not say that all the things that happen are good. But God says, I work all the things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, together for good. And God is able to see the event as it is, whether evil or good, but ultimately to work it out for his glory and our good. That's Edward's for me, helpful illustration of how God can see the world. God can do that because God has the highest vantage point, literally, and God has omniscience. All, he, he knows all. And therefore, God can see everything and how it fits together, whereas we are down here. And the only lens we have is the narrow lens. So what we need is a glimpse of and access to that wider lens. How do you get that? How do you get this wider view of what's going on in God's world? Well, only God can give it, and thanks be to God, he has done so by giving us his word. He tells us in Scripture what he has planned and the 
kinds of things he is orchestrating in his world so that we have a glimpse of this wider view of all the events that look chaotic to us but are in perfect order to him. So it's kind of like this. It's kind of like a tapestry that has a top side where the tapestry is woven, but then there's the bottom side where there's all of the strings and all of the stuff hanging down. And the tapestry for us is like up here. We're on the bottom side of that thing, and all we see are the chaos of these strings hanging everywhere. But on the top side of that, God is weaving something. And God sees what it is he's weaving. And it's hard for us to see that from our vantage point. But God in his word gives us glimpses of what it is he is doing even through the difficult, painful events of our lives. As an example, in the book of Ecclesiastes in your Bible, the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes written by the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. And if you've ever read through that uh, book, it could be, if you don't understand how it's framed, it could be a very depressing book for you. Because as you read through it, here's Solomon talking about all of his experiences, and he keeps using this phrase over and over again, all is, anybody remember? Meaningless. Vanity. Vain. Empty. It's all meaningless. It's all vain. It's all empty. Wow, I'm depressed after I'm reading all this. Ah. (laughs) But you need to couple that phrase with another phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, in fact, he starts it out in the King James, vanity of vanities. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But then he uses another phrase in those 12 chapters throughout. It's this, under the sun. And then you begin to see what's going on here. Solomon is talking about life under the tapestry. (laughs) From our vantage point, under the sun. But he also tells us, thankfully, that there is a view above the sun. There is a wider view from the top side that sees everything that is happening. One clue to that is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you don't know what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is, it is, uh, in the words of those great theologians, the birds, to everything there is a season, turn, turn, turn. And the words to that song come directly out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Number one on the charts at some point in the 60s. But in the midst of this litany of things, to everything, a time to laugh, a time to cry, a time to be born. In, in, In that litany of things for which there is a time, Solomon says this, a time to every purpose under heaven. So Solomon is looking at life under the sun, and under the sun, it looks meaningless and vain. But there's another vantage point that then teaches us that there is indeed an appointed time for every purpose under heaven. And that's why, back to your notes then, life often seems out of control. The reason it seems out of control is because it looks out of control because we can only look through the narrow lens. But God looks through the broadest lens. And he gives us a glimpse through that broadest lens in his word. We're going to see that together in our series. 
I say in those notes as well, topics to be covered, middle of that introductory page. We're going to cover topics together over the next few weeks like why do bad things happen? Now, why do bad things happen? The biblical answer is, I'm giving you a preview, the biblical answer is, you call it, you could use the word sin, but I prefer to use, and I'll explain why, this word for this purpose, fallenness. Fallenness. Why do bad things happen? Bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. And the reason I'm not using the word sin here is not because that's not a major part of it. It, it is indeed. But because sin has entered God's otherwise good world, the world is now, we say, fallen. Not only are we individually fallen and sinful, but we live in an environment and with other people who are also fallen and sinful. And it's a result of that fallenness, sinfulness on the part of ourselves and other people, but also the environment, the very air we breathe. The ground was cursed, the Bible tells us, as a result of sin entering God's world. And so sickness and disease and death now happen because of fallenness. So life in a fallen world means bad things happen. Why do bad things happen? Because we live in a fallen world. But there are assumptions that we make about our suffering, and that's another topic then that we're going to cover. What assumptions do we all make regarding suffering? And one of those assumptions that we can make when something bad happens to us, so you get a diagnosis, and it's a bad, scary diagnosis, and your thoughts can easily go to making assumptions, I did something wrong. Therefore, this is happening to me. That's an assumption that many people make. But remember what we said under the first point. Why do bad things happen? Because of fallenness, because we live in a fallen world. And it is a mistaken assumption to say that this effect happened because of this particular cause. Many times when bad things happen to us, we don't know the cause to that effect. It can be just because we live in a fallen world. But if you make the assumption that there is a one-for-one one to everything that happens. If I do good, I get good stuff. If I do bad, then bad stuff happens. Well, now you're going to look for what's God doing to me? What did I do wrong? And the Bible not only does not teach that, it actually teaches quite the opposite. We tend to follow what's in Latin called the lex lex, L-E-X, talionis. And that's the law of retaliation. And it's based upon the first part of your Bible, the law that God gave. Many of you have heard God said through Moses, an eye, remember, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So that's come to be known as the law of retaliation. Now we read that as something harsh from God. You do wrong and an eye, you're going to have an eye, okay? So I'll get you. That's what God's saying, we think. But actually, in God's law, the reason that that's given, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on, is actually a matter of God's mercy. 
It was a law against having extravagant punishments for relatively insignificant crimes. So God says you will only mete out an eye for an eye. If a kid steals a candy bar, this is my paraphrase, you don't give him the electric chair. So what has come to be known as the law of retaliation is actually an act of God's mercy that says the punishment needs to fit the crime. And that's what eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth are about. But we make the assumption that God's out to get us. I have a misstep and God zaps me with something. And then when I get this bad news, it must be because I did a particular thing. It may just be because you live in a fallen world. Remember Job? And what had Job done? The Bible's answer is very clear, nothing. Job had done nothing to deserve what happened to him. He had done nothing in particular to cause these things to come on. God takes pains in the book of Job to make clear that that's the case. In all of these things is the refrain, Job did not, do you all remember, Job did not sin. At the very beginning, Job is a righteous man, and he led his family in righteousness, but then suddenly this calamity comes on him. And we're given the picture as to why, that Job never got, as far as we know. He certainly didn't get it at the beginning. We see behind the scenes that Satan has come and asked permission from God. And God says, all right, but you will only go so far you will spare his life. Now think about that. You think you live in a chaotic world, a random world that's out of control? Listen, even the devil is in God's control. Even the devil is in God's control. The devil has to ask permission from Almighty God for what he does. If we could get that one truth down, it would put the televangelists out of business. I have heard some of them, these false teachers, search desperately to try to find some reason, some cause in Job's life for the effects that he experienced. I've heard Kenneth Copeland do this. I've heard Frederick Price do this. These are all these false teacher people that you should not be watching. Lord, help you if you send them any money. But they teach this kind of cause and effect. You do the right things, you'll get the right stuff. You do the wrong things, bad things happen. Job must have had something lurking in his life. The best they can come up with is at one point Job says, the thing I feared most has come upon me in all of his travails. And they go, ah, look, he had this fear, he didn't trust God, therefore these things happened to him. Despite God taking pains to say he was a righteous man, And showing us that this happened because God was demonstrating something to Satan about the fact that people can be loyal to him, God, simply because he's God, not because of the gifts he gives. John chapter 9, in your New Testament. Jesus has brought a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples had this one-for-one mentality. So they come to Jesus in John chapter 9, and they say, Master, who sinned? Now notice the assumption. Who sinned? Somebody sinned. This guy would not have been born blind if somebody hadn't sinned. 
So who sinned this man? Now, remember, he was born blind. So in some previous life did he sin? Who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? You all remember that? John 9. And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents. But this man was born blind that the power of God might be manifest in his life. And Jesus heals him. So we often have these assumptions. And we've got to have biblical assumptions about what happens to us. If we do not, then something bad happens and we can immediately conclude, I did something to deserve this particular effect. The Bible teaches very directly against that. But notice the third bullet. How do our beliefs affect our view of difficulty? Make these assumptions. How do our beliefs affect the way we view the difficulty that we're in? And here's one way. Sometimes we have a a lex talionis in reverse. You know, the eye for an eye or tooth for tooth is about, about punishments. So being meted out for wrongdoing. But we sometimes have the mentality, the belief system that says, not if I do wrong, bad things will happen. You may or may not believe that. But we have this belief. If I do right, good things happen. If I walk uprightly, if if I obey God's word, then good things should happen. Where did God give you that promise? Let me give you a clue. Nowhere. Nowhere. In fact, quite the opposite. You kidding? You guys remember reading Faith's Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11 is filled with all of these heroes, men and women of the faith, who by faith did all of these marvelous things. But then the Bible tells us the fate of many of these people. It says some of them were sawn in two. They lived in caves and holes in the ground. They were destitute of food. Faith's Hall of Fame. The idea that because I do good things, good things happen to me is directly contradicted by God's Word. The great apostle Paul was beheaded because he preached Jesus. All of the apostles were killed for their faith. So this idea that if I do good, then good comes out of it, directly contradicted by the teaching of God's, the clear teaching of God's Word. So, dear friends, we've got to lose the belief that we deserve better. And yet, underlying much of our seething anger and frustration and depression is this notion, false, I deserve better. I've been a good guy, been a good gal. I'm doing my best. It shouldn't be like this. Hey, read about the other people in the Bible. It shouldn't have been like that for them, should it? The truth is, the Apostle Paul was a better man than any person in this room. 
And yet he was in jail, beaten, shipwrecked, and ultimately martyred. So how do our beliefs affect our view of difficulty? We often have this false notion that we deserve better. Notice the next one. Why are we so surprised at suffering? If there really is this thing called the fall, if sin did enter God's good world, and the world, the people in the world and the world itself, the environment we live in, have been affected by the fall, if that's all true, and it is, if that's the case, now I just want you to think about this. If the world is fallen and sinful, <laughs> then instead of being surprised when things go wrong, what? We should be surprised when things go right. I mean, by rights, everything should go wrong. If I'm really a sinner, and I am, and if you're really a sinner and you are, which means that we are in rebellion against God, then why should anything go right for us? And if the world, the environment we live in, is cursed by the fall, then why should we not all have diseases and fall over dead tomorrow? And fall over dead a long time ago, actually. Well, here's why. Hear this. It's a matter of God's grace that we're surprised when things go wrong. When things go wrong in your life and you go, why is this going wrong? You ought to then go, thank the Lord that that's the exception and not the rule. Because given sinfulness and fallenness, it ought to be the rule rather than the exception. And the only reason it's not the rule is because God is gracious to sinners like us. So why are we so surprised at suffering? Here's why. Because we think we deserve better. And we assume that life ought to be smooth and wrinkles are things that come in from the outside. When in fact, if it were not for God's grace, it would be exactly the opposite. Things would always be bad. And by rights, by God's justice, they ought to, given our sinfulness and our fallenness. And then one of the questions we're going to pursue is, what are God's purposes in allowing suffering? Notice, plural, purposes. But in this preview, just let me focus on, give you one. Suffering tends to focus the mind. When suffering happens, when pain comes, it tends to focus your mind and my mind in ways that when things are going just fine, we are not. We become easily distracted. But if the doctor comes back and says it's cancer and it's spread and it's bad, that focuses your mind in an instant, doesn't it? So God has purposes, plural, in suffering. But one of those is that it tends to focus the mind. We become distracted. We become distracted by the allure of the things of the world. And Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God lovingly 
disciplines us. He, he brings us back from wandering. Suffering focuses the mind. C.S. Lewis said that suffering is God's megaphone. It gets our attention. Pain is God's megaphone. Then that next bullet, how can I make it? Through my present distress. And if you don't have a present distress right now, I've got news for you. You'll have one coming up. I'm just the bearer of good news. That's always what I do here, okay? Many of you have heard me say many times over the years that life in a fallen world is such that you are either in a trial, recently having emerged from a trial, or you're fixing to go into a trial. That's the way life in a fallen world is. In one, recently come out of one, fixing to go in one. So when I ask the question, how can I make it through my present distress, I can say with confidence most of the people in this room have some form of present distress. And it takes all sorts of forms. And the question that we ask ourselves, understandably, is how can I make it through? And I want to give you this preview. You cannot make it through alone. You cannot make it through alone. If you choose to suffer alone, you are making a mistake for yourself, and you are also, how can I say this kindly? I can't. You're you're violating God's purpose in your suffering. One of God's purposes, in addition to focusing the mind, is for us to help other people. But other people can't be helped in our suffering if they don't know about it. So you are not to suffer alone, one, believe it or not, for the benefit of other people, but for your benefit as well. You need that help. You need that support. You need that prayer. So how am I going to make it through my present distress? The answer, God's answer, is you're not to make it alone. And further, you're not alone. You're not to try to do it alone. And here's the other thing you need to know. And remember, you're not alone. I, uh, over the years, have heard numerous times people say to me, well, I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, James and Sharon Sternberg stood up here to say goodbye to you all as they moved to the west side of the state. And in the course of saying goodbye, they gave some personal testimony about their own lives about some of the struggles that they had had, struggles with one another, and how God had worked in their lives and in their relationship. They had the courage to do that. That helped a lot of people. But numerous of you came to me and said, I had no idea that there were other people in this church struggling like we do. And that's happened time and again over the years where people get word, there's a prayer request out there, or somebody has the courage to say, I'm struggling with something, and then people go, I thought I was the only one. I don't know every form of distress that's present in this room, but I can virtually guarantee you that someone else in this room or someone in our church who's not in this room has gone through it, has emerged from it, or is going through it, or something very much like it. Dear friend, you are not alone. And you were not made 
to bear this burden alone. That's why Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 tells us, carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then last, how can I help others who are experiencing pain? Well, you can't if nobody knows you're experiencing that you've experienced pain. So if you're not willing to share your story, then you can't be of help, the kind of help that you should be to others. And for those who are experiencing pain, it's important for you to be willing to share your story and how God is working or has worked in your life so that they can be encouraged in what they're going through now. And why do I say this? Here's why. If you care to jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. And here's what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our trouble so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. What a beautiful verse. Thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Now notice the way it's worded. He comforts us in our troubles, the God of all comfort does, so that we can comfort those in any trouble. It, it may be the same trouble you have. It may not be the same trouble you have. But he comforts you in your trouble so that you can comfort folks in any trouble. Because even though it may be a different circumstance, it's still all ugly, difficult pain. But above it all is the same God of all comfort. And how can you help others who are experiencing pain? You share your testimony of how God has comforted you so that they can be comforted with the same comfort we've received from God. Now you begin to see in that God has his purposes, right? And what's going on in our lives. So friends, I hope you will take and think then about the assumptions that you make with regard to your, your suffering. Do I deserve better? Is something bad happening to me because I did some particular thing wrong? Does that square with God, what God teaches in his word? Am I angry? Am I bitter? Am I depressed? Am I frustrated? Because I believe I deserve better, does the Bible teach that we deserve better? Should I be surprised when suffering comes? Probably not. I should be surprised that things go as well as they, they do. God has his purposes, and he sees through the widest lens. How do I make it? Not alone, and you are definitely not alone. And one of those purposes is that you share your testimony to comfort those who are in any trouble themselves. Now, we're going to plow through that stuff together beginning next week. You'll get a notebook of uh, material, as I mentioned, and then over the next several weeks, we'll see what God teaches about how our misery, our misery leads us to God's mercy.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word tells us about you, tells us about us, tells us about your world. Your word, your word tells us why the world is as it is. It tells us why we are as we are. And then gives us instruction in order to harmonize with who you are, to be reconciled to you, and to begin to see the world and ourselves the way you see it and us. Lord, without it, we would be groping in darkness. Without it, when the things that happen to us occur, we would make false assumptions. We would have erroneous beliefs. We would jump to false conclusions. As a result of those things, they have effects upon us in the way we think and the way we feel and the way we act. Lord, we're angry and we're frustrated. We're depressed because we think false things. We believed deception. Thank you for your word. That is truth. And we ask you to help us then over the next several weeks as we look into your word that we will see in its light what suffering is about, what you are like, what your purposes are. I pray, Lord, that that will help us in our present distress, whatever form it takes. And I pray, Lord, that because we have seen you and we've seen what you are doing, that we will then be better equipped to help others so that the light of Jesus is shown through us even in the midst, not despite our suffering. Go with us this week as we ponder these things and as we seek to change the way we think, as we repent, change our minds regarding false thinking about you and about ourselves and about our circumstances. We ask, Lord, that it would make a difference in our attitudes and in our words and in our behavior. Bring us back together next Lord's Day, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.